In a minute, we're going to hear the scripture read by uh, my good friend Darren over here. But first, I just want to set things up a little bit. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are living in a time in our culture, in our society, in our world, indeed, when the twin kind of powers of politics and religion uh, have become intertwined uh, in some very toxic ways and have actually done real damage to our communities, to the way we relate to one another, the way we talk to each other. They have torn apart families, uh, both of blood and also families of faith. Um, and overall, um, tremendous damage is being done to the beloved family of human beings uh, and we, who are made in God's image. Every person who is so worthy of his love and, and whom he died for. And there's so much division and brokenness and anger uh, and, and this is to a, a race of human beings who have been called uh, to enter into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus. And it's one of unity and of love and of peace and of common purpose. And, and I think it grieves the heart of God to see the landscape that exists right now. And I think for all of us who care about the kingdom and care about people, it should also uh, grieve us. You know, they say don't ever talk about religion or politics in polite company. Are we polite company? I don't know if that's, I can. Because it will only cause arguments, okay? But I think that sadly, our lack of conversation about these things doesn't make the problems go away. And actually, I think it can actually make them fester and rot in the darkness when no one's prepared to talk about anything. And secondly, as I've said many times before, if we don't address fully what God's word addresses when it does address issues, uh, then we will give the impression that certain parts of human life are not relevant areas for Christ's lordship or our obedience. Some of us may not think that it's all that relevant or just right now you just switched off. You're like, I don't care about politics, politicians, the intersection of politics and religion. But these issues have had and are having real impact on our community our relationships and our ability to provide a clear and winsome testimony to the gospel of Jesus, what it looks, feels, sounds, is like. You know, and I think this pandemic thing has, you know, caused a kind of not a simply new things, but a kind of revealing of perhaps what has already been there, as many had said. And there's been a lot of anger and division around this area. Have you witnessed this conflict? Have you seen it? Have you felt it? Do you have family members who won't speak to each other anymore, perhaps, or won't speak to you? Or you're really not sure what to say to them, and there's a, there's a line, a division, a separation that it hurts your heart. You feel somewhat helpless as to what to do. Yeah? Confusion about this whole situation, about where to start maybe for something better, or just you feel kind of apathetic, worn out, done. You know, we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling it, This is Jesus. And, and he has jurisdiction and authority and a word to say about every aspect of human life. And today, I'm not just bringing this up because I want to. In fact, sometimes these kind of things I don't want to. I'd much rather talk about bunny rabbits and daisy chains and fluffy clouds. 
But today, we're going to witness Jesus chart a way towards wise and righteous living, not being taken out of the world, but here, right in the midst of it, with all of its complexity and the challenges that living today in our world as a human being, surrounded by other human beings, entails. Darren, I'm going to invite you up to read the text for us this morning. Thank you very much. So today's scripture can be found in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent him some Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is on this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are emperors, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Short but pretty profound story. What is Mark teaching us here that might be relevant to our day, our time, our place, and the, and the, the situations that we see? Well, first we witness the dark side. It's a dark side. There's brokenness displayed in this account of these visitors who come to Jesus. And we see in here this kind of this toxic nature of political and religious power in that place, in that time, which has always been a problem for people, hasn't it? Power, they say power corrupts, right? It's very hard for powerful people to avoid the pitfalls of power and these people were no exception. I just want to mention a few things that we see that we might find similar in some ways to the way these things happen today when, when the church and the state have this kind of relationship that can become problematic to provide a clear witness to who Jesus is. Several things that we see in this passage about these men who come to Jesus, and the first one is false alliances. Each one of these things starts with the word false because there's a very little truth in this whole situation. So Jesus is a growing target now in the, in the eyes of these political leaders, these powerful men in Jerusalem. He has a problem. He has come into the temple, we heard, and he has disrupted their commerce, uh, the commerce that was preventing the nations, the Gentiles coming in and experiencing ability to worship God. We see that he has said a parable that the leaders have clearly thought was against them he is coming straight into the center of power with a strong and a clear word. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we saw it with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And, and I uh, was very proud of the way I did this. I said, the gatekeepers, the lawmakers, and the movers and shakers, right? Um, but, but that's who they are. They're kind of, they cover every aspect of life with, a, with a, a strong authority of power. And they're not willing to yield any of it. And it causes them blindness to see who Jesus really is. 
But Jesus has purposely entered the city of power. He has come. He's not afraid. He comes into this place against the, you know, the, the concerns of his disciples, and he comes. And now we see this group coming to Jesus, consisting, Mark tells us, of Pharisees and Herodians. So this, these are, it's amazing, Mark does it this way because they represent the kind of the twin powers of religion and politics are standing before the Lord of heaven and earth now. Almost like the representative of these two powers. They've come clearly to stand before him. And they are in common cause. They made an alliance to seek to undermine and rid themselves of Jesus. And it has brought previously kind of disassociated groups who don't really like each other into a unity together. I read this week that Pharisees were not really fans of the Herodians. The Herodians are very much siding with Rome to keep their power. And the Pharisees were very much about religious purity. They did not want these Gentiles overlords over them. Uh, and then the Herodians, well, the clue is in the name, Herodians, they're of Herod. They're part of his gang. And there were three Herods, actually, around that time, and they all ruled different parts uh, initially of the, of the area. Then one of them was misbehaving. So the Romans took that area over themselves, and that's where Pilate comes from, who will try and, and, call, and send Jesus to execution. But these Herodians are the political powers. You know, it's like the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? There's this false alliance. They're not really friends, but their opposition... To get what they want, they are joining together and coming to Jesus. And I think there's a warning there for, for followers of Jesus that we have to beware of becoming so caught up in some issue that we're so focused on, so passionate about, that we find ourselves in alliance with people who fundamentally disregard Christ and perhaps end up in opposition to your brothers and sisters in the faith who don't happen to agree with you about that issue. And I've seen that happen. I've seen Christians of very different perspectives in many areas who have become almost enemies and who have, they've become friends with those who disregard the faith. But it's the enemy of my enemy is your friend and it's going to get the job done. So these people have come together, united. It's such a toxic thing. They don't like each other, but they're going to join together to shut Jesus down. The second thing is false motives. Our motivations are really important, aren't they? You know, we sort of say, what is my motive in this? It's almost like from our motive spring action and it's gonna be better or worse, good or evil. And it's clear, as Mark says at the beginnings, that their motives were false. They were like wolves in sheep's clothing. It says, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to what? To trap him. Mark just calls it out straight away. They have a dishonest, agenda-driven reason to come to Jesus. And it's all about their power. Priority number one, that's their motivation. We must stay in power. Third thing is false words. Dripping with flattery. <laughs> false words. What do they say? We know that you are sincere. We know Jesus, that you show deference to no one. We know that you do not regard people with partiality. We know you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. What are they trying to do? Have you ever had anyone say things like that to you? You know, flattery for a purpose. 
They're not true words. They don't believe this, but they are saying it because they're trying to get Jesus into some place of perhaps you'll think, well, they're on my side, and then they will trap him with what they say next. And doesn't it remind you sort of of political doublespeak and manipulation, you know? False words, you know? There's a joke that used to be about lawyers, right? How do you know when a blank is lying, their lips are moving, right? I've heard it applied to politicians, but, and I'm not saying all politicians are not saying truthful things, but I'm saying there's a great deal of false words flying around in the internet and in the world, and, and much of it is in this area where there, there's a purpose and a motivation that leads people to say things that are not really true at all. The word spin, have you heard that word? Spin masters. Um, so then comes the question. Here's the, here's the big words that they bring, and this is what the focus is on for these men today. I, I imagine they stayed up for nights thinking about how, what best way to trap Jesus. And this is actually, they could not have come up with a better question than this to ask Jesus in public, in this mixed crowd of diverse people who have all different kinds of opinions, and they say to him, oh, you are amazing. You teach everything true. So what about this question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Why is this a trap? Well, because this tax that they're talking about was only to be paid by Jewish people to Rome. Roman citizens didn't have to pay this tax. This was conquered people's tribute to Rome as a means of um, supporting the machine of Rome, which was overlording over them. Um, but these are false words because... The Pharisees would not want to pay this. One of the reasons is because there was an image of Caesar on this coin, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, which considering images and the importance of that to Israel, you're not to make images. And then Caesar was also considered to be somewhat of a god. We talked about that a few weeks ago where it said, the divine Caesar is going to bring peace to our world. The Herodians would say yes, probably. They would probably say in answer to that question, yeah, we probably should because we want to keep our jobs, we want to keep our political power. So yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, but probably begrudgingly. But the reason the question was so good is because the crowd itself, if Jesus said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he would immediately have a response from these conquered people, pay taxes to Rome? They murdered my family, they crucified our leader, etc. But if he said, it's not legitimate. You should not pay taxes to Rome. It's going to get word to Rome pretty quickly. You know the Herodians are going to go and say, this rabble rouser has said we shouldn't pay taxes to you anymore. It's a terrible place to get to, isn't it? And what a good trap of a question. So how does Jesus respond? You know, I've heard that some people in like law school and things study the Bible sometimes, the book of Romans, but some of these other things to, to find the incredible wisdom of responding to an answer. And Jesus responds, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first I just want to say that, you know, so this is the dark side, right? This is what the powers of religion and politics do. And they come to Jesus with this thing and they think we've got him now. He's going to be ridiculed. He's going to be un exposed. And the people, if they don't get rid of him, the Romans are going to get rid of him. So we're cool. So what does Jesus do? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was studying this passage this week and I realized that even though these men spoke words of hypocrisy and flattery, every single thing that they said was true about Jesus. 
every single thing they said was true about Jesus. So they thought they were saying these things flatteringly, but I love it. It's like almost like Mark, there's a kind of hidden story and, and truth in this. They're saying, yeah, oh, you are, and what do they say? You are sincere. You're a man of sincerity. You are independent. You have an independence about you. Uh, you're impartial, and you tell the truth. And there's, there's nothing true about the way they're saying it, but they're so true about Jesus. And this is exactly what happens in his response. He responds from out of these character qualities and give us some indication or perhaps a way forward for how we might engage in conversation and in being a human being in our society today. Sincerity, independence, impartiality, and truth. What about sincerity? What does it mean to be sincere when it comes to Jesus? You know that when I say that word sincere, you get a feeling, don't you? Like, isn't that a good feeling? You think about it, you meet someone who is sincere. And then times that by this man, Jesus. Every word spoken, every action taken, deeply meant, intended, sincere. And this is how he responds to this trap. The second thing is independence. Was Jesus an independent thinker? Or did he follow the crowd? Man, he was ahead. <laughs> the disciples are like, what is he doing? What's he doing now? And his enemies are just like, back to the drawing board, you know? And I think early on, there were probably attempts from them to kind of get him to join them. You know, they said, great teacher. There was some earlier, less flattering, insincere comments to Jesus that were probably meant to get him on their side. I'm sure the zealots who were revolutionaries were like, this is the man for us. And the Pharisees go, he's one of us. But Jesus was independent. No one's power swayed him from his mission. No one's power. And no one's, so actually he was in the business of giving up power. How's that? They're like, come join us and we will be powerful. He's like, I'm giving all my power up for you. Because power is not going to fix this thing. Rome, peace in Rome, that's not really fixed it. And then, so no one's power swayed him and no one's sinful past disqualified them from his loving presence and friendship. He saw the most broken, sinful, just people full of regret and shame who couldn't find a way out of their thing, like a tax collector, collecting those very taxes for Rome. And none of that disqualified them for this presence, this welcome, this invitation to come to him. Truth. He was and he is the truth. Therefore, Jesus is radically different from these men who come to him seeking to trap him in his words. To all appearances, he's just like a guy, a humble guy, a guy from a poor town with nothing and nobody, a few disciples and a crowd that, you know, is a bit like, you know, they're hot one minute, cold the next. But he is so different because of these ways he embodies these qualities. So the first thing is alliances. He has true alliances. They have false alliances. He has true alliances. He will tell people the truth about themselves, but always welcoming me into relationship. Amazingly, among his disciples, who did he have? He had a zealot who would never pay the tax and would die to not pay it. And he had a tax collector 
whose job it was to make sure the peasants gave the money to Rome and skimmed a bit off of the top. That's such a beautiful alliance. And in him and in his message and his ministry, they came together as brothers. And I'm sure they were both watching this conversation with interest as Elliot's like, wow, my, who I am? Be like, no way, man. What's he going to say? And the tax collector's like, yeah, he should probably say, yeah, you should, because I know how difficult it is to be against Rome. True motives. They had false motives. It's kind of sickening when you think about the deception that they were trying to bring in. But Jesus' motives were pure, and it was nothing less than the salvation of all who would hear and respond and follow him. That was his motivation for everything he did. The glory of God and the renewal of the creation that God so loves. And then true words, what wisdom. What does he answer? Well, first he says, bring me one of these coins. And in doing so, he actually exposes their hypocrisy because, well, he doesn't have one on him. So it's not like he's got one ready. They can't accuse him, well, he's already paid his tithe. He's got a Roman coin with a Roman emperor's head in it and all this stuff about Rome being great. So he has to ask his accusers, bring me one. And they're like, oh, we don't have any. Right? They're like, yeah, we do. Probably a Pharisee is like, I shouldn't even have this thing. Totally called them out. And then he takes a look at it. And he, what does he say? He says, Who's, what is, whose is this inscription? It's Caesar, right? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And they got nothing more to say. Imagine how angry they would be now, though. Things are getting heavy. This is part of five stories of this interaction with these people that's going to lead to Jesus' arrest and his death. You know, there are powers in this world, both religious and political, who will always stand in the way of the purposes and witness of the people of God, and it's because of power. And as in this story, they will often look like the most religious people in the world, and their power will seem to testify to the righteousness of their position because they're successful and they're powerful and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus was doing the opposite. He was giving up power. But what is wonderful about this vision of Jesus, this interaction, how we see him in the flesh, in the world, like human beings, like we are, is that we can take these same factors of sincerity and independence and impartiality and truth, and we can use them to evaluate the powers that seek our approval, our vote, our presence, our participation, our money, our social media dissemination of information, whatever it might be, we can do the same thing. So sincerity, let's think of sincerity. You know, do you ever get something when, when someone that is on your side, all right, or you kind of agree, but you hear something they say and, and you get this little thought that maybe it's not that sincere, but you push that down because they agree with you? To have that faculty switched on and say, I care about sincerity. Is this person truly sincere? Sincerity is a good thing, even if you don't agree. It can be something to evaluate and think. And there's a lot of insincerity out there that we need to pay attention to. Independence. We've talked about this before. Um, what's his name? Um, oh my goodness. You know what I've named this? Is, my name uh, retention is getting worse and worse with every passing year. Who's the guy in New York who's a, Tim Keller? Tim Keller had an article a couple of years ago, and it was about people's allegiance to a party when it becomes all in. And he said, as a follower of Jesus, you can't ever take the full meal deal is what he said. 
because these are all people, they're imperfect systems, and so full buy-in. Jesus didn't fully buy into anything except the kingdom of heaven, and that's what determined what he would do and what he didn't do. And sometimes he would be in the opposition to certain people who may be considered to be progressives of that time. And other times he'd be very strongly on the side of those who seemed really conservative at the time. But we find it hard not to be in one camp, don't we? Because it's uncomfortable, you know? But it's this road less traveled. So independence, it's really important to realize that there's only one common thing that we should have in common, which is Christ and him uh, as Lord. Impartiality, it's hard to be impartial, isn't it? I'm one of the most judgmental people on this planet. Let me just tell you that right now. I judge people for everything. I hate it. I mean, seriously, God's been really working on that recently with me. I hate it. I'm so quick to judge. I probably judge different people than you judge. I see some punk rocker, I'm like, cool guy, probably good guy. You maybe don't think that way. I see some suit and tie guy, and I'm like, oh, man, yeah, whatever, right? It's, it's me, and I judge with these eyes, right? Not those eyes. Impartiality. Don't let powerful people co-opt you, and don't reject those who seem powerless, because blessed are those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and we can learn a lot. But don't reject and be impartial. Judge everything and everyone on with a, with a fresh you know, openness to receive, perhaps. Because God does speak to a lot of different people, okay? Truth. And I think we fall down a lot in this, we Christians. And not just Christians, but no matter what your perspective, I see people share things on social media a lot that are simply not true. Okay? And you can't always know if everything's perfectly true, but I'd say err on the side of caution. Because if we're talking about Jesus being true and the gospel being true, and then we're sharing stuff that's not true, People who are watching that go like, I'm not really sure I can trust this person as a source of truth, right? So, you know, pray about it in all things, right? Say, God, is this helpful? Should I share this? Or is it simply, am I simply, um, you know, reassuring myself that I am right? You know, he is right. Let God be true and every man a liar. Not women, it says man. But there's, so there's one overriding point that, I, that Jesus wants us to understand, Okay. And so we're going to do it. We're going to do this story right now in San Dimas this morning. Who here has a denarius that they can bring me? Okay, so a little denarius elf was here earlier. And hopefully there's enough people in here who have seats. But in the front of the seat, in the back of the seat in front of you, behind the giving envelope thing, there's another envelope in eight seats. Or near you, so be prepared to get up and walk around. But if you, if you get one and it says property of the Roman Empire on the envelope, pull it out, don't open it yet, and raise your hand. And I'm going to get a glass of water. Oh. Yeah, raise the envelope in the air if you've got the one that says property of the Roman Empire. One, two, there's eight. Three. Can someone count? Because I'm... Is John doing it? Great. Okay, I think that's good. So open it. And you don't need to bring it to me. But open it. And we're going to do this.
Okay, for, for the benefit of those, and you can keep this as a little souvenir. And if we didn't get eight, is there eight? Did we get all eight? Okay. If we didn't get all eight, then some kids can, can you go around and look around all the backs of the chairs and find it, because it's pretty cool. Okay, who has a loud voice that has a coin? Oh, there we go. Cecilia, let's give you a microphone. Can someone take that to Cecilia, please? Because I did my steps for today already, so I don't want to open it. 5,798. Okay, Cecilia, um, we got a picture up here so you guys can see it too. This is an original one, these are replicas, so don't worry, I didn't spend a massive amount of the church budget on real, genuine Roman coins. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you a question, Cecilia. Yes. Uh, what images are on that coin? Caesar. Okay, so it's uh, okay. And uh, what other images? Anything else on the other side? Image? Um, looks like a, a starburst. Like a starburst. Okay. Uh, and what does it say on the inscriptions? What is the inscription on there? What's the name? Can you read Latin? Um, no. <laughs> well, do your best. Both sides have inscriptions. Okay. Yeah, it's actually weird. The V, the U's look like V's. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you. Ready? So yeah, Augustus Caesar, and then it says it's actually uh, Roman. It's uh, Deus. Sorry. Who speaks Latin here? <laughs> Julius, okay? Deus Julius, okay, and it means divine Julius, okay? Julius Caesar, who's read in the Shakespeare play or whatever, right? What happened to Julius Caesar? Yeah, he got etu brute, right? He got murdered, right? So he was the uncle of Caesar Augustus and his adoptive father. So the coin of Augustus has Augustus Caesar on one side, and then the other side it refers to his father, which was Julius, who it was said was divine who was a god, okay? And the comet, the starburst on the other side is saying there was a story that, Julius, that Caesar Augustus himself said that upon his coronation, his coming into power, there was seen a great comet in the sky. It was a symbol from heaven that he was the chosen one. Does that remind you of the Bethlehem story a little bit? We talked about that, right? Mark is writing a kind of a story in direct opposition to the Roman story of the good news of the emperor. Well, actually, uh, the, the, this coin that Jesus would have had was the Emperor Tiberius, but I couldn't afford uh, the Emperor Tiberius coin, only the Caesar Augustus coin. But it's the same kind of thing. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, this coin, who does it belong to? It's got the image of Caesar. This is, this is Caesar's. It's the work of his hands, his system. It is legitimately his to possess, retain, receive. It's part of the system that he overrules and governs. Therefore, give it to them and do not worry. He doesn't come right out and say, pay taxes to Caesar. He says, this is such a clever thing. This is part of his system, so give willingly, without fear. At some point, Jesus has to pay a temple tax and he sends Peter, these miraculous coins appear in a fish's mouth. He's like, don't worry about that. And then he says the next thing about God, right? 
So I've got a question. You don't have to have a coin in your chair to answer this one. Whose image do you bear? And whose name is inscribed on your life? Is it Caesar? Is it some politician? Is it some religious leader? It is the Lord God. We bear his image. His image is on us. Therefore, we are the work of his hands. We are legitimately his to possess. Part of the system that he overrules and governs and is free to do with as he wishes. And this is the amazing, uh, ever applicable to all parts of life when we're worried about these things. They don't worry about the systems. We're not called to rebel and be zealots and take people's lives because there's a political system ruling over us. We are called to look beyond that and say, this is temporary, this is passing away, this is only for a time. And I can be a good citizen here, but my life belongs to God. He is my authority. And there may be times when we exercise sincerity and truth and impartiality and independence. And truly there are parts of the world where the laws of government do oppose legitimately the laws of God and I would be willing to make myself a person who would stand in opposition to that. But the main point of this is that my life is God's and I'm to offer myself to him every day, bearing his name. I don't need to be frightened, therefore, of the powers that be. Because Jesus certainly wasn't, was he? He was not trying to gain power, he was giving up power. And he offered himself as the perfect example of what it means to be a human being whose authority was the Lord. You know, there's a few things I just want to share as we close. Um, the first thing is this is so, so wonderful. It's a privilege and it is a command and a calling. It's that the kingdom of God on earth today in the people of Christ, that's all those who said, I want to follow you, uh, is the one place on earth where all of those who witness us should see, be able to see a beautiful, unique, supernatural and transformative unity. Just like in the disciples that Jesus gathered from all of these different places and perspectives, they were united in him. And often they didn't really know where they were going or what they were doing, but they were seeking to exercise faith together. And they would set aside some of these differences because of that unity. And as I said at the beginning, we live in a culture that is divided and seemingly unable to engage in meaningful, respectful conversation based on shared values. And the church has shared values and a shared purpose. And it must therefore seek to realize and nurture and protect and celebrate the unity that is created and established by Christ's work on our behalf. And I'd like to also say that so positive, some of us are doing this. And it is beautiful when enemies reach across because of Christ and work together from shared values for the kingdom in our community. It is beautiful. It's very difficult, isn't it? For all you have tried, it's very difficult, but it's beautiful. So some practical steps. I think it starts with prayer, doesn't it? I think almost every sermon we ever did should start with this sense of like, Oh, Lord, I think I see how far short I fall from your call for my life. And he knows it, and we are forgiven. 
But then he says, come to me, ask, seek, knock, the door will be open to you, you will find, you will receive, starts with prayer. Oh Lord, give me a sense of, the, of eternity, of the smallness of some of our human constructions that I can get so tied up with. And let me give me a sense of your kingdom, the eternity that I'm living in. Give me a sense of wider community, my brothers and sisters of all kinds who I am connected with in intimate bonds in Christ. Give me a discerning spirit, Lord. Help me to discern what is good, what is better, what is best. And then think about how you engage in your community. You know, I think all the time, like, I can't change the White House or the Congress or those other things uh, that are so large and huge and remote roof for me, but I can change in my local community, in grassroots. I can be present and a participant in this community, bringing my discernment and my wisdom and my my love here. So think about school boards, principals, teachers. Like how are we engaging at a local level? If you're a parent, or if you're a teacher, or if you're a principal, what, how do you bring Christ into those conversations? Grocery stores, wherever you're involved, you're getting involved locally. I met one of the city managers at Charter Oak during our Bible study, and he was in there inspecting with a clipboard. And uh, it was just such a cool little moment. And I was like, hey, I'm Grant. I'm a pastor next door. We do this Bible study. Um, and so he, he, I gave him my card. He gave me his card. And I've had this burning desire in my heart to know the people in politics in this part of the world and, and let them see that, that we, we want to see flourishing in this community. We want to be part of it. We want this community to know that they're loved and to have opportunities for beauty and for faith and for worship and for community and connection. So I emailed him. He's not replied yet. If anyone knows Chris from the city, tell him that I replied. <laughs> but I said, hey, can we get coffee sometime or lunch? I'd love to meet you. Because he has some power. And I don't want any of that power, but I don't want him to know he's loved. And I appreciate that he's doing a hard job and probably gets a lot of flack from people sometimes, right? So, you know, this is our statement, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, to follow Jesus, love people and do good. And it's not easy, folks. It's hard, right? And it involves every day I wake up and say, oh, Lord, I surrender to you. My life is yours. I carry your name. I'm made in your image. Isn't that profound? That of all the unique people in the whole world, God is large enough that he can place his image on us and we will grow. The more closely we become like him, the more uniquely we become ourselves. And the more there's this amazing diversity in our church where you meet people I don't know, you connect with them in ways I could never connect, and, and, but he uses all of us in that way. We're going to go to communion now as a way to, to respond to this. If you don't have one of these, please raise your hand and someone will bring you, Mr. Peter Tridy will bring you a, a little chalice. <clears throat> this is always a good way to respond, isn't it? We've said that, haven't we? It's like, it's, it's a, such a humble moment, uh, but it's, it's a picture of fellowship and a meal with Jesus. I don't invite you to this, Jesus invites you to this. And it's a way for us to say, yes, Lord, this is what I want to do. And at that time, on that night, the night he was betrayed, he invited all his disciples, including the zealot, the revolutionary against Rome, who was trying to figure out what does it mean to be a lover of God now in this land when this man is a man of peace and he, he calls me to change. And then the tax collector who is still probably hated in the community and he's been welcomed to the table as well. And they're sitting together sharing bread and sharing this wine together. What does it mean? 
Okay, I'm going to show you a really bad drawing I did this week, which I think is uh, perhaps helpful. Thinking about the divisions maybe that exist within the body of Christ. Can we have that picture, Kira? Sorry about the drawing. <laughs> this is an illustration of something that really, I said this a couple of years ago, and it really like, stopped me in my tracks. A friend of me told me about this and said, okay, think about this. Um, if you can imagine two of Jesus' people who are as opposed as possible to one another politically, and they totally are opposed to each other politically, completely different sides of every issue, okay? The point is, in Christ, they have more in common in identity and purpose than either of them do with someone who is perfectly aligned with them politically. Such is the uniting power of Christ. That kind of blow your mind? So these guys in the middle, right, they're, they're totally aligned with others who think the same. And it's not just politics. I put the donkey and the thing up there either way because it's a two-party system. It's an easy way to think about it. But it could be about anything that can be divisive in the church. Anything. And you can get someone who is exactly the same as you. You, you go at lunch with them and be like, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, everything about everything. And then there's a brother over there who's doing the same thing over there. You in Christ have more in common. I mean, universally, eternally, powerfully, with bonds that can never be separated. That's something to think about and celebrate. And it does cause us to have to cross over and say, hey, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. What are our shared values? Let's not talk about the stuff that we disagree on right now. Let's start with what do we think is righteous? Let's talk about how we might start to discuss that in our community. Sorry about the drawing, though. <laughs> and I think that's what was happening with these diverse people in Jesus' disciples. The tax collector probably still met with his friends at times and was kind of on the outs now because he's with Jesus. He's trying not to say something bad, that, like make them feel guilty or bad. But what he did do is he had a feast for his friends, said, come meet this guy, Jesus. And then the zealot probably was like, meets his zealous friends, that we've got a revolutional plan, Friday night, be there, bring your dagger. He's like, I can't go there anymore. I still understand that this is evil, but hey, come meet my friend Jesus. I'm not gonna have, actually have a party uh, Friday morning, and you might not end up going out with your daggers Friday night. Once again, sorry about the drawing. <laughs> so this is what, this is what, this is the unity. We celebrate the unity of brothers and sisters all over the world from different cultures and backgrounds and everything. We say we are one. And here's where it starts to say, wow, we're all different. But there's a love that is, is a connecting power. and Jesus has made us one. So we're going to take this bread, and I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians. So just hold the bread, and close your eyes and think about what this means. What has changed that God, from all the people of the world, is, is, is creating one people, diverse yet united. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body to the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is what we celebrate. Christ has done it. We are his. And we long for the day when that is fully realized, but until that day, O Lord, your people, we seek to be in unity, aware of our differences, but seeking to grow in love and mutual respect and submission and purpose. And we take the cup and we celebrate that even though Jesus Christ was God, he did not consider that something to be used for his own advantage, but he set it aside. He became a servant even to death on the cross. And he did it for us, that we might become one, we might become new. Let's respond in song now. Let's worship. <laughs>